2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 15. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think, is, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. My gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that as we come to the study of your word this morning, I ask that you would be the one to lead us. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be the one to open our hearts and minds, that we might see and hear the things that are here before us in your holy word. Lord, we pray, Jesus, that you would be the one who is high and lifted up. You are the one who is honored and glorified as our Savior, the one who paid the price and the penalty for our guilt and our sin on the cross and was victorious, even as we've already sung this morning and as we've recited in the Apostles' Creed, was victorious as you rose from the dead, conquering death on our behalf, that we might not know eternal death, but we would know eternal life. I pray, Father, we would take away any impediment, any distraction from our hearts and minds this morning, that we might be able to focus clearly and consistently on what you would have to teach us this morning and make us ever more into your image, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago, a friend of mine uh, was talking to me, and he was talking about the fact that he was, he was in conversation with a friend of his at his place of work. He worked at a fast food restaurant. And as you may or may not know, in fast food restaurants, you can have these busy times where you're just flying, doing all sorts of things. And you can have these slower times where there's not as much going on and you have the opportunity to talk with those you work with. Well, as my friend was in one of these slower times, day after day, he would begin to converse with a friend who was on the other side of the line that he was working on. And and this, uh, this friend of his uh, was somebody who, who had been born and raised in Central America and moved to the United States and uh, was working there and, and was, a, was a loyal member of the Roman Catholic Church. And as they, they talk, they, they, they converse back and forth about what is the nature of the church? What, is the na- what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be saved? Because it, it was, obviously they were, they were both interested in these things. And at one stage, my friend asked his, his friend at, at the restaurant there, he said, I'm curious, what is it 
that is most important to you? Why is it that you, that you are so convinced that to remain in the Roman Catholic Church is the most important thing? And the man, without hesitating, reached into his pocket, pulled out a set of keys, and he shook them, and he said, Pedro's got the keys. And he's, what he was doing is he was referring to the fact that in, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, Jesus, in speaking to the apostles, says that I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound, and whatever you loose shall be loosed, and so forth. And the idea is that, that, that the thinking within the Roman Catholic Church is that there's, that, that there's been this apostolic succession that has started with Peter, and it has moved along to every pope, every bishop of Rome ever since, and that that bishop of Rome is the most special person in all the church because he is an apostolic succession. He has all the authority. He has all the blessing of the Lord. He's the one who makes every, opens the door or closes the door to salvation to anyone. He can excommunicate. He can draw people in. The pope, in short, is special. He is higher up. He is of a different class. And so to belong to the church where he is is surely the best place to be. Well, what's interesting to me is I thought about that story again from some years ago as I was reading Second Peter. Of course, this is Peter himself, uh, the one to whom Jesus spoke in Matthew 16, to whom he said, I give the keys. And of course, there's a whole uh, conversation there that we could have we're not going to have right now. But here is Peter. And as Peter is writing, something intriguing is going on here. If anyone can claim a high status in the church, if anyone can claim to be a little bit better than the rest of us, there are a few names that might pop into our heads, and surely Peter is one of them. Paul might be another one, any of the apostles. But what do we see here when Peter opens his letter, when he greets those to whom he is writing? We see, in fact, our first point is, we see the unity of our faith. The unity of our faith. Why? Because what Peter says after he introduces himself, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, he says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing to ours. Peter goes out of his way right from the beginning to make sure everybody understands, I, Peter, do not have a faith that is by nature better than yours. I, Peter, even though called to be an apostle, I am not superior to you simply by being who I am. If you are in a, turn back a page in your Bibles or scroll back a little bit, you'll see in 1 Peter chapter 5, he's already done this in a different sort of way. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1, he begins to address the elders. And how does Peter, the apostle, the one who spent three years with Jesus, the one who was especially commissioned by Jesus to go and continue to spread the good news of the gospel, how is it that he talks to the fellow elders, those people who are now in charge of the local congregations around the globe? He says, so I exhort the elders among you, 1 Peter 5.1, as a fellow elder. He doesn't say, I exhort you as the, sup the supreme pontiff. He doesn't say, I, I, I exhort you as the chief apostle. He doesn't say, I exhort you as the one who actually takes up the first half of the book of Acts because that's how important I am. He doesn't say that at all. He says, I exhort you as a fellow elder. Now, of course, Peter is not afraid to claim authority. He is an apostle. He recognizes that. But you see, his authority does not make him a better Christian or a more important Christian than anyone else. 
In this sense, I think it's important for us to understand here that Peter's authority is institutional, not constitutional. It's institutional, not constitutional. You may say, well, what's the difference between institutional and constitutional? Well, institutional authority is something that God has instituted, given for the good of the church. In other words, God instituted, he gave to Peter a certain authority as an apostle, as he did to the other apostles, as he did to Paul. And God institutes that certain should continue to have authority in the church, the elders among you. That is institutional authority, instituted by God, given by God for a specific purpose. But that is different from a const- something that's constitutional. Constitutional means it's part of who you are. It's innate to your being. It's, 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 it's how you would identify yourself clearly in, with respect to others. And you see, constitutionally, Peter is just like the rest of us. Constitutionally, Peter is not a better person. Constitutionally, Peter is not a better somebody who comes along with, with greater faith or, or better faith or a higher quality faith. And of course, Peter, of all people, can't really claim that, even if he wanted to. He clearly doesn't, but even if he wanted to, how do you claim that when we've already got the Gospels where he denied Jesus three times? Peter understands that he is one who has an an institutional authority, but is, is not constitutionally different from anybody else. And that's why he actually begins in the in the opening greeting there. I love it. He says, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle. I love the fact that he is bringing these two things together. He begins with, I am but a servant. And that's a word that is used throughout all the New Testament to describe the rest of the church, you and me. Paul refers to himself as a servant. Peter refers to himself as a servant. Peter and Paul both call us servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Peter begins this wonderful, he shows the unity of the faith by saying, yes, I may be institutionally one of the apostles. I may be somebody who has a degree of authority in the church because God has ordained that it should be so, but constitutionally, I'm with all of you. I know what it is to struggle with sin. I know what it is to be tempted to to doubt. I know what it is to be tempted to even deny Jesus because I did it and I even fell to it, Peter could say. You may say, but surely there are differences in degrees and so forth of Christians and their maturity and so forth. Well, yes, there are people who are more mature in the faith and less mature in the faith. And there are some that God calls to hold authority like apostles or elders and so forth. But in terms of our faith, there is a complete unity and commonality. A complete unity and commonality. You see, I might be able to look out on this congregation, and I don't know many of you, but if if I got to know of you, I might be able to point to to say some, some woman and say, she is a more mature believer than I am. But see, it's, it's different than saying her faith is different than mine. No, the faith is the same. The reason she's more mature is she's had more time to work her faith into her life. Let me give you an illustration to help sort of concretize this, if you, if you will. When my wife and I lived in Scotland a number of years ago, a long time ago now, because as you get older, you forget how long it's been. But anyway, <laughs> there was a time way back when, in fact, in the last century, um, when, we <laughs> when we lived in Scotland. And we got to know, the church we were attending there, we got to know this young man who was a beekeeper. And he loved his bees. There's a whole story there. He loves his bees. Anyway, he, we bought from him the most wonderful 
honey you could ever taste. I'm not exactly a honey connoisseur, but this, this stuff was great. But he also sold us, we also bought from him, some beeswax. Why on earth did we buy beeswax for? I had no idea what the beeswax was for. But he was over one day for, for dinner on Sunday afternoon, and, uh, and he had this beeswax, and he said, well, let me show you. He said, here, here let me show you, what you one, one application for beeswax. And he undid it, and we had a coffee table, an old coffee table. You know, when you're first married, you, you, you own very little, and most of the stuff you have has been handmade down if you're, if you're like us. And it was fine. You know, we had furniture. We were doing fine. But a lot of the stuff we had was borrowed or, or hand-me-down. And so the coffee table we had was in a little bit of disrepair. It had been long, it had been old, it had been just sort of neglected. And he said, well, and he took a little bit of this beeswax, and just on the corner of the coffee table, he started to work it in and work it in a little bit more, worked it in, worked it in, just to this corner to give us an example. And he said, all right, let's sit there for a while. And then he went off and got a cloth and he buffed it. And it was the most amazing thing in the world. This old coffee table that did not exactly look impressive suddenly had this little corner that was shiny and it made it look new. And he said, you see, what beeswax does is as you work it in, it works into the crevices, actually fills up the crevices that have, have come because of the dried wood, and it begins to fill those in, and it also gives you a sort of a shiny protection against you know, future drips and water and all the rest of it. And he said, if you, were to, you can see, if you were to apply to this to the whole uh, table, it would be fantastic, or the whole coffee table would be fantastic. He said, I myself have applied it to my desk, to my kitchen table, to my coffee table, like all over the house. The wood looks fantastic. You see, if you understand that illustration, you think, if that beeswax is like faith, everybody's using the same faith. It's the same beeswax. He was using the same beeswax that he was now using in our home. The difference was, for us, only a corner of the table, it had only been applied to a corner of the table a small little bit. There was only a little bit of all of our furniture. And we didn't go crazy like he did, but it, all of our furniture was, was really impressive because that beeswax had been worked in. Whereas for him, he'd been using beeswax for years. And so, his, like I say, his desk, his kitchen table, his coffee table, his side tables, everything he had looked absolutely pristine because over years and years and years, he had been working that beeswax in. It's the same thing with faith. Sure, Peter may be a lot more mature than many of us in the faith, but it's been because he's had so many years of working in the faith working in the, the Word of God, working it in through reading the Word and, and in prayer and, 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 and living the, the Christian life together with others, working out his, what God has gifted him to do. You see, that's just like applying that beeswax to everything in your life. And the older you get and the longer you are a believer, the more, as it were, the various areas of your heart, are, the, the, the faith is applied there. And so eventually more and more and more begins to shine and look good, better and better. And it, you look more and more like Christ. You see, the unity of the faith is, is, is here wonderfully portrayed to us by Peter. He is not somebody who is different. He's not someone who's special. He's not someone who's better than us, who has a different quality of faith than we do. The faith he has is the faith you have. The faith the apostle Paul had is exactly the same as the faith you have. We all have this faith. So there's a unity of the faith. Sure, some have been applying it longer, and so they are more mature, but it is the same faith. So it's wonderful here that as Peter opens his letter, he demonstrates to us the unity of our faith. But the second thing Peter does here, it doesn't just stop there. It doesn't just stop with the unity of our faith. He moves immediately on to the foundation of our faith. Having established that there's a unity to our faith, what is the foundation of our faith? And you'll see there, also in verse 1, just the, the last part of it there, we just looked at the first part that said, to those who have obtained a faith equal to standing to our, with ours. Then he goes on to say, by the righteousness 
of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is how this faith has come to us, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, that is an interesting term. You may or may not know this. I don't know. But if you, if you read through Scripture, it is fairly normal to come across the phrase, the righteousness of God. You can look this up later this afternoon, go through, you know, either on a, on a, a computer or, or, or a, you know, in a concordance or something, or however you want to look through it. You can look through and find this all over Scripture, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God. This is, as far as I'm aware, the only place in Scripture where we have the phrase, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, that's interesting. And if, you, if you're primed already to know that righteousness of God, righteousness of God, righteousness of God is normal, it catches your attention immediately when you realize, well, now he's talking about something just slightly different, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the point is, to, is quite simple. The foundation of our faith is, is Jesus, who is God. You see, it's, it's almost like he, he's, it's, almost, it's, it's as if Peter knows his Bible. Go figure. He knows that we're primed righteousness of God, righteousness of God, and then he slips in there, righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Don't miss the fact that he is establishing here the fact that, that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. Just as our faith, there's a unity of our faith because it is the same faith that we all have, so the deity that, is, that Jesus has or Jesus is is the same deity of the Father. There's no difference. He is fully God, not partially God. It's kind of interesting because I, I thought about this as, uh, this week as I was reflecting on this. And I thought about the Jehovah's Witnesses, I think in part because a couple of months ago they were making the rounds in our neighborhood and, and just recently some other friends we have who live in another part of the country, they've been coming to their door. And in fact, ironically, we passed two on the way here this morning. And why do I mention the Jehovah's Witnesses? Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses will teach that Jesus is a lesser deity, a created deity. I remember having a long conversation. When I say long conversation with a Jehovah's Witness years ago, I really do mean long. It lasted for a year. <laughs> there were breaks, by the way, but it did last for a long time. And we constantly, you know, I was listening and listening and asking questions and listening and asking questions and so forth. And it's fascinating because at one point he, he eventually came to this place of trying to convince me because I said, so wait a minute, you're telling me you're a Christian because this is the language Jehovah's Witnesses now use. I said, you're telling me you're a Christian. He said, yes. I thought to myself, that's already a problem. But second, I said, you're telling me I can worship Jesus? Yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. Because, I mean, he's, he's good. Hmm. And is he God? He's a God. I said, there's either he's God or he's not. <laughs> and that's where eventually things began to fall apart. Um, I'm not going to give you the whole story here. But because of that conversation, I thought, you know, it's really interesting because 2 Peter, if you want something to remember, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, this statement right here, is one of the places you can go to if somebody ever says, well, the Bible never teaches that Jesus is God. Right here. What is our faith braced on? The righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I was more curious. So uh, over the course of this week, I thought, you know, I'm going to look at the New World Translation of the Bible, why not? Which is the, is the translation that the Jehovah's Witnesses use themselves. And it's fascinating because what they did, this is amazing, they translate it as the righteousness of our God and the Savior, Jesus Christ. They put a the in there. The righteousness of God and the Savior, Jesus Christ. 
In other words, they're trying to distinguish between the two as if saying Jesus doesn't really. And I thought, now that's really, really cheeky. Why is it really, really cheeky? Not only because they're messing with Scripture, they're messing with Scripture in the very same book that says, look with me at chapter 3, verse 16. Peter is talking there of Paul's letters, and he said, verse 15 says, count, uh, uh, and, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them uh, of these matters. There are some things in them, that is Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, which... Here's the amazing part. The ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. And I thought, well, that's pretty cheeky that in the very book where Peter says there are people who are ignorant and unstable and twist the scriptures to their own destruction, they begin in this book by already twisting the scripture, and it will be to their own destruction. You cannot mess with Jesus. He is the foundation of our faith. And the Bible and Peter is very clear here that we, the foundation of our faith is the person and work of Jesus Christ who is fully God and fully human. And I love the fact that I usually, I usually refer to the, when I talk about Jesus, I, yes, I talk about him as fully God and fully human, but I also talk about our faith in him in terms of his work, his person and his work. Why? Because it's important for us to understand, and, and if we were to go through the whole of Second Peter, we'd see this more and more, that we must recognize Jesus in terms of his person because our faith is not merely informational, it is relational. We don't just know about Jesus. By the grace of God, we know Jesus. There is a personal relationship with him there. And so when we talk about the person of Christ, we need to remember my faith rests on not just information I have about somebody, it actually rests on a relationship I have with that person, with the person of Jesus Christ. And I mention his work because it's important for us to recognize that our faith is also founded on facts, on things that Jesus did, specifically that he, his incarnation, his birth uh, to the Virgin Mary, and his life, and his, and his ministry, and his death, and his resurrection, and his ascension, and the sending of the Holy Spirit. All of these things are facts in history that matter. So when we talk about the person and work of Jesus Christ, we do so. Because it's important for us to recognize that while there is information, yes, we must know, that is true, based in history, information is not the only thing we know. We also know the person. It is a relational. It's not merely informational. Our faith is also relational. So Peter already just, and you're getting really scared because there are 15 verses and we're still in verse 1. Not to worry. This is not how this is going to go. I talked with the Jehovah's Witness for a year. I won't do that for you. You know, this is, you know, we'll take a break. So, but we've seen here that Peter, already packed into just the first verse, has identified the unity or, or helped us to see the unity of our faith. It's all the same faith, no matter where you may be in, in your walk with Christ and how mature or not mature you may be. You may be saved for 50 years or 50 minutes, but the faith is the same. He's shown us the unity of our faith. He has shown us the foundation of our faith in Jesus Christ, that he is God, fully God and fully human. But third, we also see the promises of our faith in verses 3 and 4. The promises of our faith. Now, these two verses are really packed. 
says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Wow, that's a lot. So let's just walk through this fairly simply. His divine power, what's being referred to there? Well, you could think, well, okay, God's, God's God. You know, Jesus is God. He is, he is all-powerful. That's true. I'm not sure that's actually the point of what Peter is saying here. Peter isn't saying just Jesus is all-powerful. God is all-powerful. The power that he is speaking of here, given the context, is the power of the resurrection to save you. This is resurrection power. This is new life power. This is new creation power. So his divine power is his power to save you because he died for you and rose again. When it says that he has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, that's a way of saying that he has given you all the resources in Christ that you need in order to think, act, and speak rightly. They're all yours. This is what we call the sufficiency of the death and resurrection of Christ. And this is something that is worth considering here. Peter's statement is really quite bold. He is saying, if you are exercising faith in Jesus, understanding him to be fully God and fully human, the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of some cult. But if you understand, the, this, if you have faith in this Jesus, he has given you Everything you need already for life and godliness. Everything you need to speak, to act, and to think, and to desire righteously. Now, if you're like me at this moment, you should be thinking to yourself, I don't always do that. You're right. You don't. I don't. But it's not for lack of the resources that we have in the resurrection power of Jesus mediated to us through the Holy Spirit dwelling within me. In other words, when you and when I fall to temptation, it's not because God can't save us from it. It's not because the resurrection wasn't powerful enough. It's because you and I decided in that moment we prefer the pleasure of that sin than actually living continuously in the righteousness of Christ. Bear in mind, now, now this can be discouraging at this moment, thinking, wow, I really am a failure. I don't want you to walk away thinking you're a failure. I want you to walk away thinking, oh. That means at any point when I am tempted to think wrongly, act wrongly, speak wrongly, I actually have at my disposal the power, the resurrection power of the risen Lord to it, on which I can call and he will guide me through? And the answer is yes. See, the failure is not in the power of Christ. The failure is in you and me. But the wonder is that he comes to us again and again and again. Because from, from other passages of Scripture, especially Romans uh, chapter 8 and so forth, we know that nothing, nothing can take you out of the hand of God. And he will help you see more and more and more what it is to think and act and speak right, righteously because it's already available to you. 
So the divine power is a saving resurrection power. Life and godliness, giving us all things for life and godliness, is how to think and act and speak righteously. Then he goes on to say that all this comes through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. To say that it's through the knowledge of, of all that is his and his glory and excellence is to say this isn't something that you just develop from within yourself. This is something that comes from the outside. Nobody has the ability to say, I'm just going to do what I think is best within my heart. Drives me absolutely nuts. I don't know about you. When I see movies or television shows or whatever, and the advice that's given is, do what's in your heart. Be guided by what's in your heart, and that will be the right way. I always think to myself, and I, sometimes I even say it out loud, no! <laughs> Why? Because within our hearts there is sin and self-centeredness and all the rest of it. If you do what's guided, if you guide, your, your whole life is guided by what's within you, if I could be very technical and highfalutin, it ain't going to go well. But if you are drawing on the external, as it were, that which comes from without you and to you, the power of Christ through knowing him, knowing him in his word, knowing him by, through fellowship with other people, knowing him in prayer, then in v, indeed, in that, kind of, in that kind of context, you will come to know his power more and more, and you will grow in the knowledge of God. And it's wonderful that he goes on to say that, yes, you, you know all this through the knowledge. You come to know all of these things for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. In other words, Everything that is promised to Christ and through Christ for his people will come to you. Will come to us as the people of God. And then he ends it there with this rather strange statement. So that through them, these, the fulfillment of these promises based on the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. That's the positive. You say, what does it mean to be partakers of the divine nature? Very simply, it means to be more like Jesus to look more and your character, to look more and more and more like him. You don't become him. That's why Paul, Peter uses the phrase partakers of. It's not like we, we disappear and it's only Jesus. It's, it's the life of Christ and his character and his godliness and there's a resurrection power. That is us. That's a positive way of putting it. Then the negative way is putting it. Why? So that we might escape from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We see we have these sinful desires and there's the corruption in the world. But if we are calling on the resurrection power of Christ, we will escape these things. And he will give us the freedom that we desire from the, 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 the burdens of sin. So in essence, in these two verses, again, very, very packed, Peter is saying, Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that resurrection power that he accomplished for you is applied to you and makes, is, makes available to you everything you need to live, to act, to speak righteously. And you gain this, an understanding of this more and more as you come to know him through the reading of the word and prayer. And as you understand these things, you will see how all of the promises of God are entirely yours. And you will look more and more like Jesus and less and less like the world. Now, one thing you might be asking is, well, what are these promises? I'd love to know what these promises are that, that he's talking about. And it's interesting. When Peter talks about these great and pre these, these precious and very great promises, he doesn't define them. And I think he does that on purpose. He doesn't define these precious and very great promises because he wants to say that all of them. In other words, go back and start reading from Genesis all the way through the Bible. Every last one of the promises to God's people is now yours. 
So for example, <clears throat> just to choose some Old Testament examples Peter may have had in mind, in the book of Isaiah, we read and say, say well, it starts, it's all over the book of Isaiah, but chapter 60 to 66, the sort of the last few chapters, there's all kinds of language there of new creation. And you may say, well, that's great, because new creation is in the future. Well, yes, new creation fully brought in is, is in the future, but the new creation has already begun to break in now. You, as Paul says in, to the Corinthians, you are part of the new creation. You are new creatures in Christ. You say, but I don't think I've ever experienced that. Well, I hope you have, and let me just give you one way in which you might have experienced this. It's been my joy to experience this on, on numerous occasions, and I'm really hoping and trusting it's been yours as well. Have you ever been in conversation with a fellow believer? And it doesn't have to be a serious conversation. It can just be coffee. It can be sitting in a living room. It can be having lunch together, dinner together, walking through a park. Hopefully not in the summer at 117 degrees, but, you know, maybe in January. Um, doing whatever. Sitting by the poolside. And, the, and, and you begin to realize that the fellowship you're enjoying with this fellow believer or believers is just so wonderful. And for a minute there, you think, I, really, I know it has to end, but I'm hoping it doesn't. I'm enjoying the fellowship of this other person, whether it's just one other person or a whole group of people. And you think to yourself, this is wonderful, and I don't want it to end. Guess what? That's the foretaste of present reality of the new creation that will be all the more known in the future. You are tasting the new creation of which Isaiah spoke now. Because then it'll be even more amazing. Because that conversation, those friendships, that fellowship will in fact never end. So it's absolutely marvelous. We can think of the, the, the promises of, of, of Jeremiah of new hearts because of the new covenant. You think, new heart? I don't know if I've ever experienced that. Well, again, everyone's experience is different. Oftentimes, the people who resonate most with this are the ones who've come to faith later in life, and they have fully indulged in all that the world has to offer, and then they come to faith, and they are an utterly new person, and they realize, you're right, my heart is totally different. My desires are totally different. That is a taste of the promises that are already being fulfilled in you. We could go on, I suppose, in the, in the, the promises, but the, let, me, let me just pause here for a moment, and you may be thinking to yourself, well, it's great that these grand promises of new creation, it's great that these wonderful promises of a new heart. We could talk about the promises of the new kingdom in Daniel that are fulfilled even as the gospel goes to every tribe and tongue and nation. We could talk about Jew and Gentile being brought together in the new temple of God as described in the book of, of, uh, of, of Daniel and described in the book of John and so forth. But you may be sitting there thinking, yeah, that's all great, but right now there's something going on in my life that is really, really hard. And those grand promises, they're great. But I need a promise for today. I need a promise for now. And as I thought about this, it was interesting. Just this week, I received, uh, twice a year, the seminary I went to um, as a student sends out an alumni magazine. And just this week, it came. And I'm flipping through this alumni magazine, so whatever. And I look at the table of contents just to see what's going on. I discover that one of my classmates from, yes, last century, <laughs> one of my classmates wrote one of the articles. I went straight to it. I thought, this is fantastic. You know, I haven't seen him since we, we graduated, but this is fantastic. I go to read it, and, and, he, and it says, part of it, what he's doing is telling his own story, his own testimony. And he had told me some stuff while we were at seminary together, but he had not told me everything. It was absolutely mind-blowing. He was born and raised in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. As he was raised in the Congo, at the time when he was eight years old, there was a rebellion that broke out. 
And this, the, the rebels were causing mayhem and havoc everywhere because they were very powerful. They were well-funded and they had lots of artillery and so forth. And he said, the village we lived in, if we heard bombs and rockets overhead, we would run one way from our village to the river because that was the place of safety. If a bomb lands and everything starts to get hot and fiery, you just jump in the river. But if we heard that men were coming with machetes and with guns, we ran into the jungle. And in, trust me, in the Congo, the jungle is deep and dark and it's a jungle because the men won't follow us into the jungle. So could you imagine being raised as an eight-year-old child and you're wondering, are there rockets overhead, bombs exploding, run to the river, or is it men that were here are coming with guns and machetes and were running into the, to the, to the jungle? Well, he said, at the age of eight, these men came and my family, he said, my parents, we have a large family, grabbed us all up and said, run into the jungle, run. So we all ran into the jungle and we stayed there, but it was very clear because my dad would go and sort of peek and find out what was going on, we couldn't come back out again because they decided to take up residence in our town. So we had to go deeper into the jungle. And he said, the first night you're in the jungle, of course, your senses are hypervigilant. And he said, you could hear the lions padding through the forest looking for prey. As an eight-year-old, your mind begins to do things. I think, honestly, at my age, mind begins to do things. Then you remember the pythons climb trees and wait on the limbs above for prey to come and they drop on you and encircle you and that's it. He said, then it gets worse because you remember that as you're thinking about the, the lions that are, that are padding through the forest and the pythons that are above, you remember that all the vipers are on the ground and they can't wait till you step there and then they bite you and the poison kills you and you're dead. And he said, the whole time I'm standing there, sitting there and then trying to lie down, go to sleep. He said, the sleep didn't work at all. <laughs> That first night, he said, then the mosquitoes, one after another, after another, by the millions. They ended up living in the jungle for two solid years. Two years of all this going on. Now, when they ran away from their village, his parents, they, all they did, he said, we didn't take anything. He said, we just had the clothes on our back. That's it. So, but when we ran away, my parents did take two things. They took a Bible and a hymnal. That was it. It's all they could take. And he said, every day we would gather together for worship. Every day we would gather together and read the word of God and sing. And he said, those were the most precious times for those two years. And he said, by the sheer mercy of God, no one died of malaria. No one was ever attacked or bitten by a wild beast. And we never saw a snake. Two years in the jungle. I promise you, that doesn't happen normally. And he said one of the things that he, the passages that he memorized, because he's an eight-year-old boy, nine-year-old boy, ten-year-old boy in the, in the jungle, apart from when you're fishing, hunting, or trying to figure out what grubs are you know, edible and which aren't, because you have no food, you've got to figure that piece out, he memorized the Word of God. And he said one of the passages that he memorized was Psalm 34, 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. And he delivers them. And he came to the end of that two years with his family and they came out of the jungle and they began to come back to some sort of normal life. And even to this day, writing many decades later, he said, it's amazing to think that the, the word of the Lord is true in very specific moments of life. He said, it wasn't easy. The deliverance didn't come the next day. It took two years. But as I said in the article, he said, as I said, 
Nobody died of malaria. Nobody was attacked or bitten by an animal. Nobody was stricken by a viper. Nobody had a run-in with a, with a python. Nothing. And the Lord kept providing food. You see, some of the promises of God are these grand and wonderful and awesome promises. And Paul Peter wants us to know, yes, they are available to you, new creation. It is absolutely marvelous. But others of the promises of God are very personal and precious. So if you're here this morning and you're going through something and you're, and you're, just, you're, not, you're wrestling with it, you're thinking all of these things are really big and I, what I need is a very specific promise. Perhaps Psalm 34, 7 is for you. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Or perhaps make it personal. The angel of the Lord encamps around me, and he will deliver me. I don't know how he might deliver you. The Lord is, is, is wondrous in the way he works. But indeed, we must rejoice that he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Well, that's the unity of our faith, the foundation of our faith, the promises of our faith. There is the quality of our faith, and I have no intention of going through all of these qualities in the faith here in verses 5 through 7. simply want to note a couple of things here. First of all, you'll notice in verse 5, he says, for this reason, because of all that we've talked about, the unity of faith, the foundation of the faith, the promises of faith, he says, verse 5, and for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Notice he says, supplement your faith. And the only point I want to make here is this. By grace, you are saved by faith alone, but never be satisfied with faith alone. I'll say that again. By grace, you are saved by faith alone, but never be satisfied with faith alone. In other words, don't be the sort of person that says, yeah, I, I walked forward one day in a church, and I believed in Jesus, and I still believe in Jesus. I know my faith saves me, but there's never any desire to go deeper and to add to your faith virtue and your, to your virtue knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control steadfastness and to steadfastness godliness and to godliness brotherly affection and to brotherly affection love. By grace, you have been saved by faith alone, but never be satisfied with faith alone. Secondly, he says, not only supplement your faith, but supplement your faith what does faith do? Faith looks to the past for strength, to live in the present, and to face the future. Faith looks to the past for strength, to live in the present, to face the future. I mean, Peter himself, as we look at the book of Acts, he understood this. He knew what faith was all about. He knew that because when, when troubles come, when difficulty comes, what is the nature of your faith? What is the metal of, the, of your faith? And it's amazing to think that Peter could look back and say, you know, I, I was arrested by the Pharisees. And if they'd had their way, they would have killed me. But they let me go. God was faithful. Then I was thrown in jail. And I was beaten. And I thought, that's it. The next thing is, off with my head. But in the night, an angel came and opened the gates and we walked out. God is faithful. And so as Peter faces any further present challenges... He can always look back to the past and say, God has been faithful. God has been faithful. God has been faithful. And therefore, I can face the present and I can face the future. My friend in the Democratic Republic of the Congo learned life isn't easy. And his life, really not easy. I said to my wife after I read that story, I really shouldn't complain. I will, but I shouldn't complain anymore. <laughs> 
This is a man who has gone through so much. I mean, that was just two years of his life. There's a whole lot more. But that is a man who constantly in his article was saying, but go back and see, go back and see what God has done, what God has done, what God has done. That's what faith does. So supplement your faith. Supplement all of this with all of these wonderful characteristics and understand that your faith is what helps you to move forward. But I also love the fact that this list ends in love. As he says there in verse 7, and, and, and to brotherly affection, add, of course, love. Love is the evidence that you are growing in gospel grace and not merely self-improvement. You see, if you're just trying to get better, do better, self-improve and so forth, it's not, that's not salvation. You say, well, how do I know the difference between just trying to do better and try harder and be a better person and actually being a believer in Jesus Christ? The answer is where it ends right here, love. You see, if you're trying to do better, try harder, that necessarily is, by definition, self-improvement. You're utterly focused on yourself, me. That's all that matters. And you'll become an ever more narcissistic, self-important, self-interested person because all you're trying to do is make yourself better. But if you understand, I can't do any of this. It must come from the outside. And you, you, all these things become part and parcel of your character and your being because you are seeking the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is adding these things to you day by day. Then what happens is your loves utterly change. And now you are loving other people more than yourself. And you're loving God more than yourself. That's the difference between self-improvement and coming to the love of God. So the quality of our faith must be something that is, is, is far greater than we could imagine. And then, very, very briefly, the hope of our faith. We've seen the unity of our faith. We've seen the foundation of our faith. We've seen the promises of our faith. We've seen the quality of our faith. And very, finally, very briefly, the hope of our faith. Verses 10 and 11 are interesting. Verse 10 is, is the warning. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. In other words, he's saying there is a way for you not to fall, but you have to be attentive. But then in verse 11, he gives us the, the positive, the hope, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gives us hope, hope for eternal life with Christ, and this is good news this is the good news of the godly life. And I'll close with this because I think it, it was interesting as I was, as I was considering this aspect of 2 Peter 1. conversation I had just on Friday came to mind. This was last night as I was... I, was, I don't normally still have things to do on the sermon on Friday, on Saturday night, but I, I was trying to figure out how to tie the sermon with a bow, as they say. Sometimes you just can't figure out where the bow is. <laughs> But last night I was, I was thinking, how can I tie this sermon in a bow? I can't quite figure out how to tie it up in a bow, how to end it. And it dawned on me a conversation I had just the day before on Friday. I'd been talking with a friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours, uh, this young lady who lives in another part of the country. And she was expressing to me, she was struggling. She was, that's why we were talking. And she was expressing to me her great disappointment in God. She was disappointed in God. She said, I don't even know if I'm allowed to say it out loud. <laughs> I said, well, you'd better say it out loud because we have to deal with this. So thank you for saying it out loud. 
And she said, I'm disappointed with God. I said, why? She said, because I am continuing and continuing and continuing to witness to all these friends, people she knows everywhere. She's she's an incredible witness to all these people. She said, I've talked to so-and-so about the gospel. I don't know how many times. I've I've tried to live my life in a way that shows that the character of Christ to this person over here because their life is such a mess and they don't know what it is to live rightly. And I'm seeking to to have conversations with someone over here who's, who's not a believer and very antagonistic and they've got all kinds of arguments against the deity of Christ. And I'm doing all of these things, and I've been doing them for years, and I have yet to see one person come to Jesus. I'm a little disappointed in God. She said, what am I supposed to do with that? And I said, well, hmm. I said, well, your friends haven't come to faith yet, and there were a lot of them. She named them by name. I said, you're right. They've not come to faith in Christ yet. But in the meantime, Perhaps God is using your unbelieving friends to drive you to his word so that you might grow in faith and virtue and knowledge and steadfastness and love. And she just stared at me like, oh. (laughs) I said, you're so focused on what you want God to do in their life that you've forgotten how he is so sovereign and providential that he is using them to work his glory into your life. You are the person today that you are because God has worked in you virtue and godliness and steadfastness and and, and, uh, all of these wonderful things and, and brotherly affection and love. And there was a whole new world opened up to her because she recognized the wonder and the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ and that she still had hope. You see, our great and sure hope is that God will apply his resurrection power to fulfill all his promises to you, in you, through you, including using everything in the world, whether believer or unbeliever, whether rebellious or faithful, God God will use all of these things to bring you safely into his eternal kingdom, the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray and ask that you would continue to work in us as we need you to. We pray that you would continue to guide and lead us. We pray that you would continue to work your promises out before us and through us and in us. We thank you, Father, for your amazing goodness and for your salvation in Jesus Christ. And for all this and more, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.